Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Thursday, May 12, 2022, and today will be better than yesterday. Sarah Abbott is working from her new place in Connecticut. Taylor Schwink is working from his new home in the foothills of Connecticut. I'm Buster only working from my home office in New York. Last night, some great games. Brewers and the Reds. The Reds have been hot lately. They built a big lead. Here was Colin Moran in the bottom of the eighth inning. The 0-1 pitch to Colin Moran, and he swings, sends a high drive, deep left field. Peterson's back. He looks up at the wall. Gone! The lead is at least nine. Colin Moran with his fourth home run of the year. This one a three-run shot. 14-5 Reds. That from 700 WLW, as Dan Patrick might say, you can't stop the Reds. You can only hope to contain them. But the most talked about moment in this game didn't come from a Cincinnati player. It came from Christian Yelich, who had a double, a homer, and a single going into his final plate appearance, and this happened. Moretta's pitch, and Yelich a line drive into right field. This is going to be extra bases for Yelich. It rolls all the way into the corner. Yelich is around second. He's going to try for three. Yelich is going to end up with the cycle here this afternoon. That from 620 WTMJ, his third career cycle that ties baseball's record. The Pirates and the Dodgers and Pittsburgh's had a nice week. The pitch. And there's a drive to right center field by Van Meter. This is a no-doubter. Clear the deck. Cannonball coming. Josh Van Meter, his second. A two-run shot. 3 nothing Pittsburgh in the sixth. That from Sports Radio 93.7, the fan, the Pirates win the game 5-3. to three. The Phillies and the Mariners and Reese Hoskins has been red hot. 2-1 pitch, swung on, belted, down the left field line, hooking at the pole, it is gone! It's a grand slam for Reese Hoskins! Right down the left field line, he hooks it around the pole. And a huge swing for Hoskins, his fifth home run of the season, and the Phillies have a 4-1 to lead. That from Sports Radio 94 WIP, Philadelphia wins 4-2. Earlier in the day, Yankees, Blue Jays, and Glaber Torres had himself a day. And a swung on, hit in the air to right field and deep. That ball is high. It is far. It is gone. It's a three-run home run for Glaber Torres. 1-1 to Glaber. Line to right center field as a base hit. One run scores. Here comes LeMayu. Tapia throwing home, and it is not in time. The Yankees win 5-3. to three. Uh, They sweep the miniseries against the Blue Jays. That was John Sterling, of course, on WFAN. Some other notes. The Braves beat third baseman Austin Riley in arbitration. The Cardinals defeated Tyler O'Neill. Everyone is wondering what's going to happen with the Aaron Judge arbitration contest. The Yankees have offered $17 million. Judge asked for $21 million. The Cleveland Guardians are dealing with a COVID outbreak that sidelined Terry Francona and several of the team's coaches. Francona tested positive. So because of that, uh, the game between the White Sox and the Guardians yesterday was postponed. Padres manager Bob Melvin had prostate surgery Wednesday, and the team said there likely won't be any updates until next week. Melvin told reporters he was having prostate surgery, and he doesn't believe he has cancer Obviously, everyone in baseball wishing the best for Bob Melvin. Atlanta Braves catcher Manny Pena will have season-ending wrist surgery after test revealed ligament and cartilage damage. The Ones Who Get It Done is brought to you by Granger. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry, backed by 24-7 support and access to product specialists. Call, click Granger.com, or stop by. You know who got it done? The Rays, the day after they were no hit by Reed Detmers. The score was two all, top of the 10th inning, and this happened. The first pitch, swung on and driven down the left field line. Will it stay fair? It does. Goes into the corner and Karam's out toward the left fielder, Marsh. Karameyer around third. He's going to score. In the second base goes Bruhan, and the Rays take a 3-2 to two lead here on the 10th. Vidal Brujan was two for 32 in his career going into that game, but he gets that big hit. The Rays went four to two. That call from Dave Wills on 620 
WDAE. There was also a game directly impacted by a blown call, and we'll talk about that in a moment. I've got an idea what Major League Baseball should do as it decides whether or not to go with an electronic strike zone or stick with the umpires. Taylor, what else do you have? Buster, new episode of SV Pod in your feed. If you're already subscribed, and if you're not, you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. The guys, when I say the guys, Scott Van Pelt and Stanford Steve, they discuss if they could land a plane. If you've heard about that story, uh, they go pretty in depth on it. Uh, they're talking NBA playoffs, NHL playoffs, and uh, Scott's trip to a Caps game with his uh, children who found it too loud. So check that out, SV Pod, wherever you listen to podcasts. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, the clutch hits, the strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Last night in Atlanta... The Braves and Red Sox were locked into a really good game. The Red Sox took a lead in the top of the second inning. 1-1. High fly ball straight away center. DeVall racing back at the track and wall. It is gone. Home run. That's number one for Trevor Story. A two-run shot to put the Red Sox in the lead in the second inning. Uh, He stayed back just enough on that changeup and got the barrel to it. Here we go. The Braves fought back with help from a rookie. Swing and a high fly ball. Drilled deep left field. First pitch ambush. Two-run homer. A no-doubter from DeMerit. In the top of the seventh inning, the Red Sox threatened. Loading the bases with two outs. Colin McHugh was on the mound for Atlanta and jumped ahead in the count. No balls and two strikes against Kevin Ploiecki. And Ploiecki slowly worked his way back into the count, ignoring cutters off the outside edge. He got the ball strike count back to full. And then this happened. Oh, he Strike three and a pitch that was not a strike. Falls down. He's been thrown out of the game. Ploiecki livid over the call. Here comes Cora. That was ball four. And there goes Cora. He's been tossed as well. Well, that was a horrible call from an umpire who's actually had a good night until now, but he cost the Red Sox a run. Out of nowhere, he calls strike three. He hasn't made a call like that all night. More crucial, bases loaded, 3-2. Ploiecki knew it was a ball. You're, that's why you never see something like this happen. I think Corridge said, you're better than that. Yes. That's exactly what he should be doing right now. Wow. That Out is a three. huge call. I mean, it's a great take by Ploiecki. Start with that. You have to be willing with this guy to take a ball. And he did. I mean, he saw it so well, the breaking ball, that ball, little sweeper, balls down out of the zone. That, of course, Dave O'Brien, Dennis Eckersley on Nesson. The pitch was clearly below the strike zone and actually wasn't close, according to the K-Zone data. The Red Sox should have had a 43 lead, but instead, the inning was over and both their starting catcher and manager had been ejected. A major crossroad in this game. And later on, this happened. 
And the 2-0 pitch swung on and a fly ball to deep left field. Back there towards the wall. Take us to the house, big fella. Orlando Arcia with a walk-off home run. And the Braves have beaten the Red Sox. After the game, here was Alex Cora. Yeah, that one right away we didn't agree. And then, you know, I try to get there as soon as possible. But, uh, you know, I was a slow player. I'm a slower manager. So, uh, you know, Plow, he slammed the helmet. And uh, then he let him know and he got thrown out. And at that point, uh, it's not frustration at that point. You know, frustration probably was three days ago in Boston. That one, yeah. But this one is just protecting a player and not agreeing with the call. Are you you a proponent of... Uh, you know, having the balls and strikes called. I mean, uh, you know, we can talk about that topic later. Yeah, but uh, like I said, you know, uh, there's a lot of pitches. It's a tough job. I mean, that's a tough job. We know that. We understand that. But obviously, you know, sometimes we agree with them. Sometimes we don't. And tonight, I didn't agree with them. Did you come in and take a look at it after you got ejected? Um, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. So you know, it's just one of those that. You know, maybe we're wrong or whatever. It doesn't matter. You know, at the end of the day, like I said, we have to put games, we have to complete games, you know, and uh, we've been very close from completing games, but we haven't done enough, and we are where we are because we haven't done that. As I mentioned, I've got some thoughts about what baseball could do to address this issue of whether using umpires or the electronic strike zone. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, mate. Welcome to the show. Whoa! Welcome to the show, baby. You're in the show with David Schoenfield. David Schoenfield, the covers baseball for ESPN. Dave, how you doing? Uh, good morning, Buster. I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great. We got a lot to get to today because we haven't had a podcast the last uh, couple days. And so there's some stuff that we have to clean up. We certainly have to start with what happened with the Angels the other day. Two and two, the count. And here's the next delivery. It's chopped to short. This should do it. The throw to first. It's a no-hitter. It's a no-hitter. Reed Dippers in just his 11th Major League start. Pitches a no-hitter. That's the 13th in Angels history. He's being mobbed by his teammates over by the first base area. A historical night tonight at the Big A. Jerry Smith, Angels Radio, AM 830 with a call there. Uh, Reed Detmers, the 10th player taken in the 2020 draft in the last draft that was run by Billy Epler. Uh, There's uh, finally, for the Angels, it feels like, Dave, a foundation of pitching. This is the best team, I think, that uh, Mike Trout has ever played on with the Angels. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt. Boy, they look really, really good right now. We knew they could score runs if they stayed healthy, but – yeah, the pitching, you know, with Detmers and Syndergaard, it's the best it's been in, what, since all those playoff teams, you know, last decade or two decades ago in the 2000s. Yeah, uh, young lefty, kind of a pitchability guy, more than an overpowering guy. Only had two strikeouts in that no-hitter. But really, nothing close to a hit. couple hard-hit balls, but just a lot of routine grounders, a lot of routine fly balls. Very pitch efficient. You don't see that, you know, too often anymore. Um, so, yeah, big, big night for the the young lefty. Yeah, and it would be fun to see Mike Trout, Shohei Otani in the postseason uh, together. You know those two guys would love to be on that big stage. Uh, you, you mentioned that Reed Detmers might be more about pitchability. Well, Justin Verlander is still about power. Here was Verlander the other night. There is a line drive base hit. Justin Verlander was within five outs of pitching his fourth no-hitter of his career. Only Sandy Koufax and Nolan Ryan have done that. And Verlander goes seven and a third no-hit innings tonight. That from the Astros television network. Uh, Justin Verlander is 39 years old. (laughs) He looks phenomenal this year. His career record, I know we don't care about wins and losses as much as we used to. His career record now is 230 wins and 130 losses. And Dave, I got to say, I think he's got a shot at 300 wins. Uh, I remember having a conversation with him about a decade ago and asked him who his favorite player was. And he talked about Nolan Ryan and how he loved the fact that Nolan Ryan remained a power pitcher throughout his career into his 40s, and that seems to be where Verlander's headed. 
Yeah, no doubt. I remember asking him the same question during the postseason one year, and he mentioned that being a goal. Obviously, you know, only making one start over the past two seasons due to the Tommy John surgeries going to affect his chances, but he looks as good as ever. He hasn't missed a beat. I was convinced he'd get that no-hitter the other night. You know, he's already looks like a Cy Young contender as usual this year. Yeah, 70 wins is a lot of wins, but you're right. Those power pitchers, Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, they can – Roger Clemens, yeah, okay, maybe he had help, but those guys can pitch into their mid-40s. And Verlander, why not? You know, I'm with you. I think he can get there. He's number one in the major leagues in terms of production from his fastball. Think about that. All the pitchers we see with great fastballs these days – and Justin Verlander, 39, is number one in the big leagues in that start. Uh, yesterday, Christian Yelich, with his third career uh, at, at the game in which he hit for the cycle, uh, I think actually, I'm not so much thinking about the cycle, Dave, as I am thinking about Yelich seemingly yep. turning the corner from his struggles the last couple of years. At his current pace, he'd finished this season with 73 extra base hits, including 26 homers. He'd score 115 runs. He'd drive in 105 runs. That's not MVP Christian Yelich, but it does feel like he's finding his way. What do you think? Yeah, no doubt. I know early in the year when he was struggling the first couple weeks, hitting under 200, uh, Craig Council was still optimistic because his hard hit rate was still like 98th percentile. He was just hitting the ball on the ground too much. Now he's getting it in the air a little more again, not like, you know, 2018, 2019, but – the balls are going over. The line drives are falling. And, yeah, he tied a career mark, right, with his third cycle. I think six other guys have done it. And they, they need him. That's not a great lineup, one through nine. They need Christian Yelich to be an all-star level player. Our friend Sarah Langs tweeted out this stat about the Yankees after they beat the Blue Jays again yesterday. This is the ninth time in Yankees history they've started the season 22-8 and eight through 30 games. The other years they did this, 1923, 1928, 1932, 1939, 1950, 1958, 98, and 2003. Sarah notes that in each of those years, other than 2003, they won the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> and in 2003, they won the American League pennant. Yep. What do you think? Yeah, I know. Buster, when, when I watched baseball the first month, month and a half, it's hard not to overreact, good or bad, but they look so good right now. They're pitching. I know there's a lot of good pitching in 2022, but their pitching has been so dominant. Uh, last time they led the league in ERA, 1998. Oh, that was a pretty good season, if I remember. That's the kind of staff they have. And the offense, you know, it's been fine. It hasn't been fantastic, but they're undefeated when they score five runs or more. And to me, you know, what if Joey Gallo gets hot? What if Giancarlo Stanton gets hot? You know, we're seeing some of the second-tier guys like Glaber Torres. I know um, the OPS doesn't stand out, but again, in 2022, it's above average. He's just another key cog in that lineup after his struggles last year. Just they look fantastic. What can you say? Speaking of the Yankees, Astros owner Jim Crane spoke with Bob Nightingale of USA Today uh, recently, those uh, quotes were published, I believe it was on Wednesday. And what he said to Bob about that letter that was released and Brian Cashman's comments early this spring, he said, I found his comments to be extremely strange. There's the letter and you were doing it too. You were there. And what are you talking about? If I was one of the teams and I knew our team was doing it, I'd keep my mouth shut and go about our business. But listen, I can only control what's going on here. I can't control what other guys do. Dave, when I saw this, and to make this clear, you know, when Brian Cashman said what he said, basically complaining about, uh, you know, the perception of the 2017 Yankees because he believes they were a better team than the Astros, that they actually were a World Series winning team, but they were beaten by a team that was cheating. At the time Brian said that, I said, I, I thought it was a mistake for him to talk about. I don't know what purpose it served. Um, you know, it, it, you knew that it was going to come off as uh, as whining. And uh, Brian typically is really good with the media. But in that case, they thought he made a mistake. But I really feel like that what Jim Crane said was 
even at, at least as bad with a lot of absurdity attached because uh, the hypocrisy, it's really funny on a lot of different levels. Uh, bear with me. Uh, first and foremost, does he really equate, does he really believe that what the Astros were doing with their real-time sign conveyance to the hitters during the plate appearances, uh, it was the same as the Yankees looking at catcher signs and then running them out and trying to convey them to the guy at second base so that he could relate that to the plate umpire? Does he really think that's equal? Uh, if his attitude is, hey, everybody was doing it with a shrug, which seemingly is, why the heck did he fire Jeff Luno and A.J. Hinch? <laughs> <laughs> like, if I'm Jeff Luno, I'm looking at that article and say, you're saying it's not that big of a deal. Then why did you let me go? Uh, he also makes an assumption with his comments that Cashman knew or was in the know, know about what went on in the clubhouse. So is Crane OK with everybody assuming that he must have known what was going on in the Astros clubhouse? and should be blamed because he pretty much has separated himself. Crane has from that whole thing. I, I it, it's, it's kind of funny the way, the way, and, and then, then you go here. Okay. Right. This is someone who okayed tanking. Like they are some of the tanking monsters uh, where they got to the point that uh, they, in one season, I think it was 2014, they finished here with only one player making a million dollars and he's complaining about integrity. Come yeah. on. No, it, it's ludicrous. I don't even know where to go. I, you could say, Jim Crane, if you have evidence that the Yankees or the Red Sox were doing something else beyond what we know, give it to us. Otherwise, Wait. what we do know, the Astros went above and beyond what other teams were doing. You got caught. But guess what, Jim Crane? You have the World Series flag. Flags fly forever. Let it go. Yes. Yes, it's forever tarnished. That's five years ago. Let's put 2017 beyond, behind us, and please, let's move on. On the other hand, I kind of love the back and forth. You know, anything that stirs things up a little, Buster, I'm all for. Yeah, I think we both agree that it would have been better for Crane and Cashman to say nothing. Right. Yes. And Crane definitely comes off like the bank robber who's complaining about, you know, how security has changed. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, because they won the championship, they cashed in on it and, and that's OK. You're moving forward. But I, I when I read that, I was like, boy, he like Brian should have said absolutely nothing. All right. I want to ask you uh, about uh, an idea that I have after watching that Braves and Red Sox game last night. Um, you know, earlier in the podcast, we had uh, the description of, of how the Red Sox really had their game against the Braves altered by a horrific call by Adam Beck, who was a home plate umpire, who generally speaking during the course of that game was pretty good. Um, I've kind of gone back and forth on the idea of the electronic strike zone. Uh, I, I think for years I was absolutely in favor of it. And then as I you know talked to JT Realmuto. Uh, other catchers. I was kind of saddened by the idea of the nuance of that position completely changing and disappearing. Uh, you know, all those years of, of catchers learning how to handle pitchers and talk to umpires and having all of that go away completely. I, I you know, I was thinking, boy, that that's not a good thing for baseball. But on the other hand, where I think I am today is that baseball needs to do everything I, that it possibly can to having games decided by the players. Because last night's Red Sox-Braves game, that game, the trajectory of that game was completely altered by a bad call by the home plate umpire. What do you think? Yeah, I actually agree with you. I am I know we're going to get the electronic strikes on. It seems inevitable. I'm not a big fan of it. Um, I do like the human element. I'm with you com completely. I love the fact that framing is a skill. And I know... More and more baseball fans disagree with us, but I do like that aspect of the game. Plus, there's the fact that the, the way the umpires actually call the zone, it's really more of an oval than, than a yeah, rectangle. Those strike calls in the upper corners that tend to be called balls now, those are going to be strikes if the strike zone doesn't change, which makes hitting even harder. So watch out on – what the real strike zone may end up being and how that might influence the game. That being said, um, 
I don't know. I mean, maybe we have can an, a rule where the managers can appeal three calls a game or something like that. So the real egregious calls can be overturned. I don't know. That, that'll slow the game down, more replay, but maybe there's a middle ground here. Yeah, so that's where this idea that I have today comes from. I trying to thread the needle between basically going entirely with the electronic system yeah. uh, and, and trying to find a way to keep the umpires in it. So let me ask you this about this idea. And I think this would be good for Major League Baseball to take the idea I'm going to tell you to the umpires and basically give them a choice and, and uh, say, look, we're going to try to decide, but we want you to work with us on this. Would you prefer A, to go to an electronic strike zone system or B, uh, work toward a home plate umpire meritocracy? Okay, Mm -hmm. put the best ball strike umpires behind home plate and reward them. And you know what, Dave, keep them in that spot for more than one game out of four. Okay, Uh, if you have umpires who are really good at calling balls and strikes, then let them work half the games uh, at, at home plate. If you have an umpire who is really good at making calls at first base, safe or out, keep that guy there. Uh, if you need to you know, graduate some older umpires into a different spot, put them at third base, let them oversee replay uh, or other you know, type of uh, uh, duties like that, but put the best umpires in the position of calling balls and strikes rather than rotating through. To me, they baseball should look at it the same way that teams look at a pitching staff, right? You have your ace, you have your closer, you have guys who are better suited for sixth and seventh inning. If you have umpires who are better at calling balls and strikes, then why in God's name, why not put them in that position more often? And you know what? Turn it into a competition. Say we've got on, on a crew of four. We have position one. We are the uh, in terms of pecking order. We have position two. If you make position one or two, and you're one of the two umpires who do uh, you do home plate, and you grade the best in our system, then you get paid a little bit more. Turn it into a meritocracy instead of rotating guys who we know are not good at balls and strikes through that position. You buy in or no? You know, I like the idea. You know, I know in our internal stat system, we we can look up umpire accuracy. And, you know, from the best guys to the bottom guys, the range is, I think it's like seven or eight percent, you know, over 300 pitches a game. You know, you're, you're looking at maybe 15 strike calls from the best umpires to the worst. So that's obviously significant. Um, my only concern would be, I don't, and I haven't, Talk to umpires about this. How draining physically and mentally is it if you're doing more than one out of every four games behind home plate? I don't know. You know, doing back-to-back games in St. Louis in the summer and then Cincinnati, that, you know, might be a hard aspect to deal with. But aside from that, I love the idea, you know, especially we all have incentives in our job to get promotions, to get paid more. Maybe that's what the umpires need. Get that incentive to become the home plate umpire. I like it. Yeah. And maybe I think you would at least need a rotation of two guys for home plate. Like in every crew of four, if you can imagine, you've got your two ball strike umpires, right? Uh, You've got uh, the guy, and you can find these, again, through statistics, which guys get the most calls right at first base. Maybe that guy's assigned first base every day. And as I mentioned, uh, you've got the, you know, the older guy in the, in the group, the crew chief, who can be at third base. I, I, I'm with you. And, you know, let's, let's be honest here as well. The schedule itself should affect who the umpires are. So you got to give the younger guys the ability to learn. So if it's a Pirates-Reds game in August, Maybe you put one of the younger guys who doesn't have a good rate, put him back there, give him a chance to prove himself and put the best umpires at the Yankees Blue Jays game or the Red Sox game, you know? So why not? Why shouldn't the best umpires be doing the most important games? And you know what? Give, uh, because they now have these systems where they can judge strike zones in the minor leagues. If you have an umpire who say is, uh, He's the let's say he's the number three umpire in the group. He's the guy who 
uh, is good at first base. Maybe you give him the option. Look, if you'd rather go down and work in the minor leagues to give yourself a chance to get better at balls and strikes and to move in the upper echelon in terms of those ratings, you can do that. Or, you know, we offer you here. But work with them in a way that, just as they do with pitchers, as I say, every team does this with their players. Major League Baseball should do it with the umpires. Yeah, and and I will say this. In my opinion, umpiring has improved drastically the last 20 years. And it's because they do. We can track every system. The umpires get their reports. They know what calls they're missing. You know, so in general, they are much, much better than they used to be. But there's still work to be done. Yeah, I had a conversation with Kyle Schwarber recently. And we were talking about umpiring. And he said, you know what? There are a lot of guys who are really good at balls and strikes. Well, let those guys call the balls and strikes. Yep. Taylor, Sarah, I'll have you jump in here uh, before uh, we go. What do you think of the idea? Taylor, you first. Love it, Buster. Call up the umpires right now. As soon as we're done with the podcast, I, I think you need to be in the league office on this. <laughs> Sarah? I agree. I think it's a great compromise for both parties. And I think that, like Taylor said, call up MLB. <laughs> There okay. you go, Buster. All right. You ready, ready to give to up go. your writing gig yet and move into the uh, chief of umpires uh, job at MLB? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, I think that would change some relationships. That's for sure. All right. <laughs> Dave, thanks for doing this. All right. You bet. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus. A Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one and done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. Todd Radom. He's a graphic designer whose work you can see on ballparks all across America, possibly the world. And he is the chief executive of our weekly quiz. Todd, how are you doing today? Taylor, Taylor, thank you so much. I am doing fine. A little something different here today for us. Yes, absolutely. Buster is in transit. So we're recording the magic of podcasting here. You can record your segments out of out of order, maybe even a day early. Who knows when we're doing this? But I just know that Buster's not with us right now. He let us go ahead. We will do the quiz as usual. And then afterwards, I'm going to present that quiz question to him in the Bleacher Tweet segment. So he will still be on the hook for an answer and uh, still take his place in the standings. Amazing. 
Super. Well, Todd, I, I want to ask you before we do the Phantom franchise and the quiz, um, you know, we always allude to your work on ball fields and what you've done. And I, I don't know that you and I have ever talked about. We're friends at this point. What your your work specifically, um, which logos you've designed, what you're most proud of. So what are like some of your like your greatest hits in the Todd Radom portfolio? Wow. So we're this is a baseball podcast. So I'll start with baseball. Uh, my work has been uh, in one way, shape or form on the field of play in Major League Baseball for 30 years. Teams that I have designed, the Angels. Uh, I redesigned the Angels back in 2001 for the 2002 season. Boom. They win their only World Series the first year that's on wow. the field. I'm taking all the credit yeah, for that. Yeah, you should. <laughs> yeah, I created the Washington Nationals. I do a lot of historic uh, based uh, visual identity, um, Jackie Robinson commemorative logos, Hank Aaron commemorative logos, ballpark closings, significant numbers and anniversaries, Yankee Stadium opening and closing, things like that, World Baseball Classic. So that is baseball. Uh, but I do uh, do work in other sports. Uh, I have designed a Super Bowl logo. Oh. Um, I am involved in basketball uh, as we speak. Um, so, you know, all kinds of sports, every, like a lot of big events, mm -hmm. uh, world series, all-star games across different sports. Like I said, super bowl, I've done pro bowl logos. So ball fields, gridirons, ice rinks, uh, hardwood courts across America. So what, it, what was like your, what was like your big break? Like, how do you, what, what, what point in your career did you really elevate to like an A-list graphic designer? Because I'm sure, I mean, like any profession, like that's it's a lot of hard work to get there. Yeah, I always say, Taylor, I was kind of born at the right time in the sense that uh, I got into sports design when it was not a thing. I always say this, but it's very true. If we had a sports designer convention when I started doing this, Back in the very early 1990s, it would have been five guys who looked like me. Now it's huge. And I attribute that in large part to the explosion of social media, to literally the advent of the Internet. Uh, in the early 90s, you had a bunch of expansion teams coming on board. And it was really the moment when fashion and licensing and sports collided. Right. We had mm -hmm. teal uniforms and new teams and purple uniforms and all this stuff. Well, in, until, you know, until the iPhone was invented, basically, which is what, 2007 or so, you know, we didn't look at things on our screens. That, uh, that really caused for, I don't know, kind of an evolution in the way that sports design plays out because the needs became so much more. Um, so, the beginning part of that, to your point, like I said, I attribute it to right place, right time. Very few people doing this. And I've always had this, uh, as you know, kind of combination of interests, not only executing this stuff, but being involved and being interested in the business of sports, the history of sports, um, stuff that goes beyond the field of play. I have a question for you, actually, really quick. Yeah. If you could redesign anyone's logo in the sports world, who would you redesign? In the entire sports world? Or baseball. Let's do baseball. We'll narrow wow. it down. You're putting me on the spot, Sarah. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, there are those daunting situations where somebody will say to me, if the New York Yankees wanted to do a redesign tomorrow, what would you do? And I shy away from that because... It's a seemingly impossible task. But then you have teams that are maybe uh, in need of a little jolt. So gun to my head, I would love to take a crack at, well, two things. I'm going to like throw a, a, a curveball in here because I've been asked this recently. I would love to do some Japanese baseball identity. How about oh, that? Yeah. So I'll start be with cool. that because it would be a really interesting challenge, a little something different, but within the world that, I'm, uh, I'm accustomed to, um, but maybe the Colorado Rockies need a little, a little kick mm. because they have looked the same since they made their debut in 1993. I was the first ever Colorado Rockies game at Shea stadium, April, 1993. They kind of look the same. So maybe they need a little evolution, Sarah. 
I like it. Todd, this is why you're an absolute professional, because this segues so nicely in today's Phantom franchise. Let's hear what you got. Oh, Taylor, it's perfect. So there are certain franchises that are going to keep coming up again and again here this season. And one of them is the Oakland A's, who very nearly moved to Denver in 1978, a decade and a half before the Rockies arrived as an expansion club. The A's won three consecutive World Series in 1972, 1973, and 1974, right before the advent of free agency. By 1977, they were a shell of their former selves, with the roster and the front office gutted. The 1977 A's finished with a record of 63-98, and and their home attendance ranked last in the majors, averaging some 6,000 fans Per game, owner Charlie Finley, who moved the club to Oakland from Kansas City a decade earlier, worked out a deal to sell the club to Denver oil man Marvin Davis for $12 million. Oakland officials predictably clapped back, citing the fact that 10 years remained on the team's Oakland Coliseum lease agreement. Finley said that the same Oakland officials had told him that if the San Francisco Giants would play half their games at the Coliseum, they would be willing to work out a deal to end the lease. In mid-March 1978, an arrangement was brokered, which allowed the Giants to legally be called the San Francisco Giants, but simply the Giants when playing in Oakland, while splitting their home schedule between the two ballparks. Ultimately, however, Finley refused to pay more than $1 million out of his own pocket to break the lease. He terminated the Denver deal on March 27th. Davis's attorney handed out a tersely worded statement which read, it is a sad day for baseball, a sad day for Denver, and a sad day for me. I was determined to bring Major League Baseball to Denver this year if Mr. Finley would reconsider his decision. Even at this extremely late date, we still have the capabilities to complete the transfer. It didn't happen. Finley wound up selling the club to the Haas family in 1980 for $12.9 million, and the club remained in Oakland, where they still play, at least for now. But today we salute the Denver A's, who are this week's Phantom franchise. These like split, uh, like home field ideas, I think uh, one has come up recently about the Rays with Montreal. They're so dumb. Like who's who is that? For? I guess it's it's for the people who live there, obviously. But like, if you're in Montreal, would you really be that excited about this? I just can't imagine this would get anyone going other than the people making money at the top of the food chain. Well, Taylor, I can't. You know, when this whole raise uh, split thing with Montreal was first mentioned, I couldn't help but think of just the logistics, and somebody is going to have to deal with the logistics. Imagine uh, uh, players, but also a whole front office that would be splitting their time between two countries with two different tax systems. And, you know, it's just like to your point, like none of it makes sense. Um, the San Francisco giants, they could have, because they would have only had to go across the Bay. No big deal. But uh, yeah, this has never worked. We've seen this. It was a thing in the seventies though. Uh, the Kansas city Omaha Kings come to mind in the NBA now in Sacramento, uh, there were ABA teams that did this. None of them worked out. Yes, we need permanency. Absolutely. All right, let's get to the quiz. All right, here we go. This team has the longest active winning streak of World Series games won. Is it A, the Giants, B, the Reds, C, the White Sox, or D, the St. Louis Cardinals? Longest active winning streak of consecutive World Series games won. Giants, Reds, White Sox, or Cardinals? Oh, boy. And Taylor, you will go first because seniority, I guess. Let's go. Let's go with the Cardinals. That was going to be my answer, and I hate doubling Just up it. answers. Just say it, Sarah. We know that. I'm going to go. Okay. I'm going to go Giants. You're both wrong. You are both incorrect. It, it is the Cincinnati Reds whose active winning streak is nine. Oh, they wow. swept the World Series. 
1990 and 1976. They went to a game seven in 75. Basically, the last loss that the Reds had in a World Series game was the Carlton Fisk home run in game six in 1975. Unbelievable. I guess I forget that the Reds used to be good at baseball. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a hot minute, to say the least, especially this season. Yeah, it's like everything else just disappeared in my brain. I'm just focused on right here, right now. That's not a bad thing. (laughs) All right, well, we will find out if Buster can score a win uh, in the Bleacher Tweak segment. Todd, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, guys. It was great to see you. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster. Bleacher Tweets for a Wednesday. And as promised in our previous segment with Todd Radom, here is our weekly quiz for you, Buster. You got to be on the record for this one. Uh, oh, boy. So here we go. You, tr- you tried to get out of this, too, before we record. Let the listeners know here. <laughs> uh, all right. Here's the question. Which team has the longest active winning streak of World Series games won? Is it A, the San Francisco Giants, B, the Cincinnati Reds, C, the Chicago White Sox, or D, the St. Louis Court Cardinals? It's got to be the Reds. Winner, winner, chicken dinner, Buster. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Didn't even blink. No hesitation. No, no. There are some parts of my brain that don't work. That's one part of my brain that works. All right. Well, hey, aren't you glad you did the question then? Yep. I I feel like a genius. How'd you guys do with that question? Not great. Wrong. So wrong. (laughs) I just forgot that. Well, the the order of the universe has been reestablished then. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. All right, let's go to the tweets. We got a whole batch from here. Pat Johnson at the Melting Pat is up first. Pat writes in on Thursday, my son Arthur will be a year old. Happy birthday, Arthur. I think, or I have to thank the podcast crew for getting us through teething COVID and late night feeds to make this about baseball. Who climbs from the cellar first? My Phillies or Taylor's Orioles? Yeah, the Phillies. I don't, I don't think it's close. And by the way, Pat, congratulations. That, that is a actually a fun time and being a parent. But it's got to be the Phillies because uh, the Orioles have a ways to go. Taylor, I keep on getting all the tweets from Orioles fans who are like, you need to give the Orioles credit. I'm like, OK, you know, they're a little better, but that's like right. going from an F grade to a D. I mean, they're still on a pace to win like 68 games. My my buddy texted me a couple of days ago and was like, oh, are the, have the Orioles turned the corner? I'm like, they can just, you know, this is bound to happen in baseball. You know, a couple stringing together yeah. games. But I mean, the bar was so low. Hey, we won more than 52 games. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, we'll see. And the, and the key question is, is as the team gets better and this talent that they've been collecting by tanking, uh, you know, grows, will ownership spend money the way that the Cubs and the Astros did to augment it. That's the key question. Would you agree with me? Oh yeah. And I mean, when are we going to start seeing these young guys too? I mean, they're they're all being held up in the minors and it's incredibly frustrating to watch. Another one of my friends has convinced me that all these guys are going to be good. So that's, that's where my head is right now. (laughs) Um, Who knows how reasonable that is. Let's go to Ed at EF. Cadade, maybe. Uh, my submission for Bleacher Tweets, having the cameraman on the field during the player celebration is a distraction. Thoughts? Ed, they're not. I, I, I kind of like the up close and, and personal. And I've oh, known yeah. some of the cameramen who've had that job. Uh, you, you know, we had Duke and then we have Jared. Great guys. Players like it. I, I, like, the, I like it. And players aren't bothered by it. Andrew Campbell at Real Camp Drew is up next. Andrew writes in, hey, Buster, it's become quite fun watching future all-star Nestor Cortez just deal every five days. But the way the league's pitchers are ahead of the batters this year isn't as much fun. Major League Baseball's average is 233. The league OPS is 677. He threw in a barf emoji in there. Any way we can fix this? Yeah, I do think they will uh, you know, have some sort of regulation shifts next year. Um, I, I hope they have some sort of a regulation, the use of relief pitchers, which I think is contributing to this because you're seeing uh, a parade of guys who are throwing 98 miles per hour. And I agree with you about context being so important. You know, Nestor Cortez is terrific and you're seeing a lot of great pitching stats, but it reminds me of the late nineties when everyone was hitting 30 homers, <laughs> like the feat of hitting 30 homers didn't feel quite as exciting because of the context. Mike Mosk at the Mosk three is up next. He writes in Heim Bloom's fingerprints are all over the Red Sox failure. He's constructed an aging rotation and an awful bullpen. Who's the closer? He's alienating fans and destroying the clubhouse by mishandling Bogart's contract. 
I think that's all correct. <laughs> well, uh, and I'd say this. I mean, Hein Bloom is not alone in the decisions when it comes to paying Xander Bogarts. That's an ownership decision, not Heim's decision. He might give a recommendation, but in the end, it's up to ownership to decide whether or not they feel like keeping Xander Bogarts is the centerpiece, is worth it to the organization. And as I've been saying in the podcast, they damn well better reassess that because I think it's clearly having an effect on the team. Don Irvine writes in all five teams in the NL West are above 500. Are they all that good? Or is this a fluke that will correct itself by the end of the season? Fluke. I, I, I don't think there's any chance the Rockies finish at 500. Danny Norlander at DL Norlander is up next. He writes in, Hey Buster, the Nats are the second best team in total hits this year. Fourth in batting average, ninth in runs in RBI, but their pitching is awful. 29th in ERA and whip any chance of a turnaround with the return of Strasburg, Doolittle and Harvey by June and July. No, I think Mike Rizzo, their general managers demonstrated he will be aggressive when it comes to flipping uh, assets. When he feels like that the Nats don't have a chance within the context of the division led by, the Braves and the Mets, I don't think they have a chance to contend this year. Last one for today, Chief Beef at Carl Havoc. I love this Red Sox piling on. It makes me so happy. He writes, and Xander Bogarts not being paid has nothing to do with the bullpen, not being able to hold and save games. Same goes for the bottom of the order, not being able to hit their way out of a paper bag. I don't know. I mean, I think it can be related to some degree because the offensive struggled, and it, it's possible that – some of what's going on with the offense, you might be related to what happened with Bogarts. And guess what? That's put more pressure on the pitching. And the pitching, you're right, has folded. So I do think that they're interconnected in some way. All right. That'll do for Bleacher Tweets. Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter while you're watching the games. Please follow, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen to your podcast. And go watch uh, Monday's segment with Buster and Carl on YouTube on the ESPN page. Good stuff over there. That's it for today. My thanks to Dave, Todd, Sarah, and Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every day. We will see you tomorrow. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.